Hi, this is Damon Pistolka, host of the Faces of Business podcast, where we talk to interesting people about life and business. We cover their backgrounds, obstacles they've encountered, and find out what drives them. Along the way, our guests share nuggets you can use to drive your success. Reach me directly, D-A-M-O-N at ExitYourWay.us, or check out our website, ExitYourWay.us, for more information. I hope you enjoy our show. All right, everyone, welcome once again to the Faces of Business. I'm your host, Damon Pastalka, and with me today, I've got Ken Novak. Ken, how are you doing today, man? Damon, great to be here, buddy. Yeah, I forgot to say, Ken with Hatch Quantified. That's right. Right? Yeah, I, I, sometimes I screw this up. It's like <laughs> someone asked me at the end, who is on next? I go, hell, I don't, I don't know sometimes. Oh, David, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Good, good. <laughs> Good, good. No, that's awesome, dude. Well, I'm glad glad to get you on, Ken, because you know the first time I saw your, I forget where we met on LinkedIn and how we did it, but I saw your profile and it says, "I help you grow revenue and avoid costs with digital investment by tracking to financial KPIs." And I was like, "Boom! I got to talk to this guy," because. You know, if you're running businesses, I think this is one of the biggest questions as an executive is like, okay, if I spend this money, how the hell do I really understand if it's doing any good? That's right. So it's going to be cool to talk about this a little bit and uh, learn a little bit more about your, your background, Ken. So as we normally do here, let's start off with your background. Tell us a little bit about, about, uh, college growing up whatever and then kind of kind of your your journey to where you are today yeah great uh grew up in cleveland uh right before we went live we we're talking a little football i'm a tortured browns fan damon tortured yeah. my entire yeah. life i'm tired of this i want one super bowl one one which you know what i gotta tell you i really like that baker mayfield kid i i think i i mean person wise maybe he's not the best player i don't even know but the commercials he does on TV are so darn funny. You just gotta, you just gotta like him. I want a winner. Just yeah. give me a winner. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. So <laughs> yeah. grew, up, grew up in Cleveland. I'm an Ohio guy. Uh, went to Ohio State. I'm a Buckeye too. The and Ohio State. <laughs> the Ohio State. Thanks for that. I always, I always love that. Right. And in at Ohio State, I got introduced to something I never really was introduced before, and it was philosophy. Okay. Yeah. And I know that you're a you like to wax philosophic yourself, so we can we can talk about some of the philosophy upbringing I had. But long story short, is my my degree actually was from Kent. Uh, had a grandmother got sick, moved back closer to home, and what Kent offered me was a degree in rhetoric that was founded in my in the uh, undergrad learnings I had at Ohio State. Yeah. So here's how I talk about rhetoric, and this is really important for sales and marketing and business. Okay. Mm -hmm. Rhetoric is the Greek art of persuasion, right? So it's an orator carefully crafting a select group of words in hopes that they can, that the audience that they're talking to will take action. The one that the orator wants, that's rhetoric. So how I tell the story is that's a pretty good proxy for sales and marketing. Yeah. That's all the same it really thing, is. Yeah, right? exactly. So, in school, I got introduced to philosophy and argumentation and, 
and rhetoric and, and some of the underpinnings of, of uh, ancient philosophies. And then I got into marketing. I fell in love with digital. And when I was getting out of college, there weren't really any websites. Uh, for your listeners, check out The Wayback Machine, thewaybackmachine.org. Check that out. It's a publicly archived available of old websites. And go check out Google's original website and some of the ones back in the day, like MySpace and Excite.com, right? You can actually go back in time, even for your own corporation, some of the, the larger ones. You'll find out what your websites used to look like, right? Wow. So talking about sales and marketing and how you're really just trying to appeal to an audience so that they'll take an action, uh, the digital space has unparalleled business opportunities to ensure profitability. Digital inherently, you have data collection, you have different channels that customers are seeking and engaging, different brands, products, and solutions. All of it can be measured because it has to be measured. Every executive wants to know this. So we've got plenty to talk about, yeah. but that's the yeah. background. So so when okay, so you want a couple we went to a pretty couple well-known schools there. So which one did you like better? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, they're completely different, right? <laughs> Ohio State. <laughs> oh, you froze up for a second. There. Both parts. Oh, see, both. so when I asked the tough question, you froze up there. So so what? which one did you like better? Because you got to get it on camera, dude. <laughs> different reasons. Football at Ohio State, the Ohio State, there's nothing like that, right? Yeah. You got lost in the shuffle at Ohio State. I was in classrooms that were filled with 300 people with a person down in a little stage with back in the day of transparencies. And I'm taking yeah. notes, right? <laughs> yeah. Totally different experience versus Kent, which is much smaller. Uh, everybody gets to know you one way or another, right? So at the end of the day, I have great memories of both, but my time at Kent is where I really got into rhetoric. And you know what? That's actually, it was a turning point in my collegiate career too, because I found myself in an honor society, which I wasn't really a part of uh, that community growing up, but I was, I found myself as a member of something called Lambda Pi Eta, which believe it or not, there's a national fraternity for rhetoricians. And All I right. found myself to be a part of that community. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Well, it's, it's interesting when you when you think about that and the differences in the colleges and and even when they're you know closely geographically like that and not so far away and and the other things that you really remember about the college that's for sure that's cool so that so i gotta i just gotta under you don't hear about many people going into rhetoric no. What, I mean, what really what really was like wow this would be interesting or this is what i want to do it was really, it was an interesting point in my life because, I mean, I grew up in a, a small city called Euclid, which is a uh, suburb of Cleveland, right? Mm -hmm. And in, in living in, in, in that city, I mean, it, everyone kind of looked and talked alike uh, by and large, right? And when I went to Ohio State, I mean, it was a real shock to the CNS of, uh, of my DNA, right? Not yeah. too many acronyms, but I got into it because a light bulb went off. I found a passion around something that I was never exposed to before, but it's because, and it actually went back to one class. I can tell you what it was. I took a class at Ohio state on amoralism. Okay. And my mind exploded. I never 
was, I mean, I've just, there's IQ and EQ. Yeah. There's a lot of things that in the EQ side of my brain, I just didn't get much exposure to or knowledge around. And it peaked something uh, really important to me that really stayed with me and is really core to who I've become today. That's cool. That's cool. It's cool to hear about it because there, there are these, these different inflection points that you, that you really run into. It's like, I, I remember I had no idea I was going to go to school for engineering. I had no idea. Honest to God, I, I, you know, I grew up on a farm. I went to the, went to the school and, and my counselor at school because I, I came up from a very small town. And so my college counselor goes, well, you came from a farm. You should go into agriculture. <laughs> and I was in the, the first semester and I'm like, dude, this isn't for me. Yeah. And my roommate was actually in engineering. And I'm like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. And I started doing it. And, and, uh, uh, and of course, subsequently, my roommate dropped out, which is funny, dropped out of not, not out of engineering, but, but I stayed in it. And, and you, I hit a class. I can still remember the class. It was like design of materials or something like that, or metallurgy, one of those in that second year where I was mm-hmm. just like, this is really what I like. I really yeah. like this stuff. And it's, it was super interesting to me at the point. And by the time I, I, uh, got done i was just like this is this is where i want to be so that's cool that's cool i remember that stuff well you get exposed to something and and, and this is i mean that's one of those life philosophies and we're going to wax philosophic just for a second yeah life skills are more important than a lot of the uh education knowledge that we attain over the course of our collegiate careers or even yeah and those life skills that mean so much more and one of those life skills i've got two daughters one of the things I've really tried to instill in them is try new stuff. Yeah. Right? You are never going to know or uncover a passion of yours that makes you happy unless you try it out. Give it a shot. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. And and when you talk about that, I, I really, this is huge to me. There's, there's, uh, you know, an education is, is cool for some people, for other people it's not. And that in the whole scheme of things is not necessarily a decider of success, decider of good person, decider of compassion, empathy, any of those kind of things. It's it just it's just a piece of it, right. uh, of of you is all it is. Uh, but oh man, I can tell we're going to go down this slippery slope, aren't we? <laughs> we'll we'll get there in a little bit. So you started out your career rhetoric. We talked about that some at, at yeah. college. Got out with that, and then you started with some digital agency work. So you were moved out and doing some marketing. So what really did you learn from working in the agencies that you like, didn't like, those different kind of things? Yeah. So the front half of my career, I mean, the way that I, I tell my career story is the front half of my career, I was global digital strategy guy working inside of agencies. My career actually started at the advertising agency that founded Monster.com. Okay. Okay. So the the original digital foundation uh, was cultivated in a digitally centric organization. And there was no better career experience I've had than starting there. And I got a really deep uh, understanding and and training in employment communications, HR, talent acquisition, candidate experience. And eventually what I ended up doing is I transitioned out of the employment space and I went to CPG and B2B mm-hmm. um, e-commerce, if you will. Right. Yeah. And, and, and there was a really great way to start to to round out my skills and my knowledge and my experience. Um, 
And it was a different set of problems for a different set of organizations with a different set of people and a different set of technologies. And, and, I, and so the, the front half of my career was all consulting. Yeah. Um, and then I hit a point in my career development where it was really unfulfilling to me, to be quite honest, Damon. But it, was, it had nothing to do with the agencies I was working for, but the process. The process was unfulfilling because sometimes you're working a couple years developing what you know is bang on strategy for a client, right? Yeah. And what happens and why it was unfulfilling is that the execution of the strategy that you're creating is reliant upon the people, process, and technologies of clients. Mm -hmm. And Damon, what comes out the other side of that process more often than not didn't always look like what the strategy was meant to be. Yeah. And I didn't get it. I couldn't understand why couldn't we make this strategy come to life? So I left the agency business and Damon, I went to the complete antithesis of the career spectrum. I went to a hundred year old manu global manufacturing company. Yeah. Where I did global digital. It was the execution of good strategy though. So I rounded out my, my career experience for the second half of my career doing digital ops. I was a hiring manager. I built a team, had responsibility mm -hmm. for e-commerce and digital design and customer research, anything search related. But it was the execution, it was the ops of strategy. And I fell in love with that too. And yeah. that leads me to Hatch because what I've created with Hatch is clients and businesses, executives, strategy is meaningless without execution. Prove it. Get the ops of executing to make it better, but prove it. Yeah. And that's what I do with Hatch. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is awesome because I think really there's some questions I want to ask about the, the places and things like that. But then I want to get into this execution piece because it's 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 the foundation of, of our business as well. Because I do think that, the you know, it's like um, boxer. Mike Tyson says, you know, the best made plans are fine until you get smacked in the face. right? Yeah. And, and it's so true. It's so true because, because, you know, you can set as an agency person or a strategy development person and build this, this wonderful strategy, and then turn it over to somebody that <clears throat> changes the basic philosophy of what you were doing because they don't agree with it. And, and it flops. That's right. And or they can't consistently do what they needed to do to execute that strategy because the consistency was core to the strategy or something like that. So back at back at in early in your career in the consulting. So you so you were actually working as monster.com was ramping up and all that was going. So it, it, I started in the early 2000s. Monster was already a thing, but it was still yeah. going. Yeah. Um, eventually, when Monster became the dominant brand, uh, the the it was a publicly traded organization yeah. agency. Um, and when Dom, when Monster became the uh, dominant brand, the agency spun out and went private. Okay. Um, but it was a phenomenal experience, and and the the people and the knowledge and the skills were unparalleled. Well, great. yeah. I mean, what were some of the challenges you were trying to solve there overall with, with Monster? I mean, because because it was, I'm trying to remember, now there really wasn't anything like it. Not at the time, no. Mm -mm. It was a job board, right? Yeah, yeah. And, so and then Hot Dog came around and Career Builder and right. Yeah. 
And it was a place for organizations to uh, post job openings. Yeah. Um, but the, the challenges that we were solving for organizations were how to get bet more better quality candidates, right? Yeah. That's ultimately what the business objective was. And you have to leverage a lot of different tools and channels in candidate acquisition, right? Mm -hmm. Monster and job boards was one of them. But what about your website, right? What about your yeah. career website? And part of the, and this is the interesting thing too, Damon, is the stuff that I was talking about back in the early parts of my career, Damon, a lot of it hasn't changed. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy to me. The challenges and the friction that organizations put in front of candidates that they're trying to get to know, they're trying to date them, and they just put up roadblock after roadblock in front of them that keeps them, the candidates, from performing a meaningful business action that you as a business owner want them to perform, which is get their resume. Yeah. They're coming to your organization to find a job. Get their resume. That, that now let's just stop right there because you are you are hitting on some of the things that I man I've been talking about this for a year plus now really hard because this one thing that you're saying could make a big difference by do you have a place where someone can submit a resume do you have your open jobs just listed on your website do you That's talk right. about benefits and anything like that just something simple I mean not nothing I, and and I bet a lot of people that are listening to this right now don't have that. Yeah. Well, and what was really fascinating to me in that in that experience that that I was uh, creating at the time was there's a direct correlation between profitability of an organization and happiness of employees. Just mm -hmm. like there's a direct correlation in the profitability of an organization and a reduction in recruiting costs. Damon, yes. the amount of money that companies spend, not just with headhunters and job boards and and those kind of fixed costs what about the what about the lack of productivity of the workforce what about those costs because the longer that you you're you have um, lower talent or open roles sitting open longer yeah yep. organization is not as profitable and productive as what it needs to be so the, one of the stats is for um, salaried workers, you can expect anywhere from 100 to 200% cost to your organization to refill a role. One to wow. 200%. That's the cost to you. Now, when you're looking at a workforce that is turn, turning over at scale these days, that hurts your bottom line. Yeah, significant. Significant. And the cost not not just this 100 to 200%, but the costs are not just in dollars, lost productivity, not things not getting completed anymore. The costs are to hire those people now. You have to have specialists that know how to market just to find people anymore. It's just, it's just so much different uh, than it ever was before to find good candidates. That's right. That's crazy. That's crazy. So what was when you look at something like that and look at obviously a big digital company, what were some of the things that you were going, wow, I would have never thought as a digital company, we had to solve that. I'll give you, I'll give you a layup and I'm going to talk about career sites again, Damon career websites for corporations. When 
a candidate comes to your site and they have that upload button that the candidate has their ready-made, carefully crafted and worded uh, PDF or Word document, if you will, when they hit that upload button and they send it over, thank you for your time. Move on. If I see another career website, Damon, that after my upload, the next screen I see is a candidate are asking me to fill out all of the same fields that are in my resume, stop it. Stop it now, please. Not yes. that. That is something that I never thought I would have to continue to run up against even today. Yeah, that's that's such a relevant, simple, and it turns uh, how many people if you if if you didn't fill out those form the the fields to get your your resume submitted, how yep. many people are not going to do that? I mean, you can't even get. You can't even hardly get people to to fill out a form for you know to win a million dollars online. That's right. So yep. it would be crazy. Yep. Yep. Don't get in their way, and that's what a lot of this comes down to. And, and what I started seeing over the course of my career is that Damon, there's direct parallels between the challenges and friction points of a candidate applying for a job. Very direct mirrors of challenges of the effectiveness of your e-commerce site. Customers yeah. that want to come to your site and find a product and check out is the exact same challenge that you're facing with candidates coming to your job, coming to your website to find a job and apply. UX and usability friction that you put up in front of them, it hurts conversion. And when you hurt conversion, you're hemorrhaging money. You're hemorrhaging opportunity. Yes, yeah. Yeah, because if you're in e-commerce, that conversion, you know, if you if you can bump that up double, you, you don't have to bring more people. You just let them buy. That's right. That's <laughs> just right. Let them buy. That's right. So this is this is really cool. I and honestly, I didn't plan it, but this is working out well because you were working for a fairly significant B two B brand there uh, in the industrial space, yep. and their kind of products. I gotta believe are a lot of different variations of products, longer, shorter, bigger, smaller, all kinds of stuff. Now, people that don't know much about e-commerce, when you're trying to sell that stuff online, just, just take bolts, for example. A quarter-inch bolt yep. comes in how many different thread yeah. pitches and, yeah. That's and right. finishes and lengths. How the heck do you present those kind of things easily for people to find what they want? Yeah. Uh, so yep. tell us about some of the challenges and what you really learned when you're working for for this this global uh, brand, helping them build out their e-commerce. Yeah. So again, go on uh, the Wayback Machine. You can yeah. look at some of these old websites and you'll see a vast improvement in a lot of this stuff, right? And yeah. in B2B and industrial, which I, I know a lot of your uh, audience is yeah. a part of that community, is that there's a lot of really common challenges across the entire space that are really due to the com inherent complexity of B2B, right? Yes. B2B and B2C, sure, there's some overlap between them, but the business complexity of B2B is very different. And that's where you get into some really tricky situations. Dealing with things like distributors and channel conflict, for instance, mm -hmm. how do you mitigate that? How do I how do I modify or improve my now decades old commercial model, which is belly to belly. Yeah. And now I'm introducing a brand new channel where 
customers are looking to find product, what does that mean to my commercial model? And one of the things that I try to educate organizations on is it's not a conflict. It isn't a conflict of your commercial model. It's an extension. It's a complement yes. of your commercial model. It yeah. just happens to be engaging customers in a channel that they prefer. You got to yeah. be there. Exactly. Exactly. And I just want to take a second here. Kenneth, thanks so much for stopping by. Uh, Kenneth's a listener often. Good, good guy. And Michelle Gunn out of Houston. Thanks so much, Michelle, for stopping by. Yep. We're going to talk a little college, a little football, a little bit of marketing. Michelle's uh, very, very knowledgeable when it comes to, to selling and sales. That's for sure. So yeah. This is something that I've talked, uh, and I need to, uh, if you haven't been introduced to Chris Harrington, I need to introduce you to Chris Harrington because oh, Chris and I are good buddies. Yeah. Now. The, ge the gen alpha, the gen alpha, because you're just talking, you're speaking my language because when you heard I get on, it's like, Oh yeah. Cause you, yeah. all these things, you know, run through because you're right. That, and this is, this is where my, my whole premise for a lot of this it looks like guys that got hair like me or gals that got hair that's a little more my color. This people that are, we look at it and we go, hey, we used to do business like this face to face. We're doing business, right? Yeah. People that are buying now, buying the kind of products you're talking about, B2B products, yep. are in their 30s and 40s. Come on, yep. let's be real. For the yep. vast majority of people, they buy from Amazon. They buy, they buy from, they buy e-commerce all day long for their personal needs. They buy their cars on Amazon. Not everybody, of course, but a vast majority. They're yeah. used to that convenience. Now, do they, do they reach out if they need technical help or something? Yes, you have to be able to do that. But when you can, when you can sell e-commerce and provide the, the, the belly to belly support, like you said, or sales where that's, where that's appropriate or it's desired by the customer, yep. you have a much more robust model. That's right. Much, it's, it just, it works. Cause you, it's like you said, you're selling it the way the, you're letting the customers buy the way they want to buy. That's right. That's right. And at the end of the day, that's what all this comes down to. And that's what I've created with Hatch is looking backwards over both halves of those of that career that I just mentioned. Yeah. I've got a different way to do this. And ultimately, there's a buzzword that everyone likes to talk about. Digital transformation. <laughs> Everybody uses it, but nobody really knows what it means. Right. So yeah. what it really means, it's not e-commerce. It's not. And here's what I say. Digital transformation is not about technology. It's about people, the people and the humans of your business. So the approach I take now is simply forget about the technology for a minute. How do you humanize the experiences of these people so that they convert into meaningful business events that they want to accomplish and you want them to do too? Wow, I just think we should sit and listen about that. Listen to that. Just think that over for a second. I'm playing it back in my head because you're right. You're just trying to humanize this into the the event that gives them what they need and gives you what you desire to. That's it. And that's where a lot of this marketing comes into play, right? I mean, yeah. you can talk about marketing buzzwords like personas and journey maps and all of that. But at the end of the day, the the one of the main premises of marketing is simply know your audience. I'm going to go back to that rhetoric. 
Yeah. We had, right? Know your yeah. audience. Well, you're going to have multiple audiences. And in the industrial space, let, let's 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 peel the onion back a couple layers, right? Uh, in the industrial space, we'll talk about two primary sets of humans: engineers, right? Yeah. The ones that are uh, doing one of two functions, which is specking a part number into the design, mm -hmm. or in the aftermarket, the person has to go fix the thing that just broke, right? And in yep. both of those cases, those two different types of engineers with two different day-to-day -day realities are both coming to your manufacturing website or your distributor's website to find a product. And they do it one of two ways. They either navigate down your product categorization or they hit search. They do both. But the point is they're coming there to for a very specific reason. And they, one of the things that I like to, talk to organizations about, especially in industrial, you have to have a utilitarian approach to the website. Get them in and get them out. Yeah. They don't want to stick around too long. They yeah. want to get there. They want to find the part number. The engineer that wants to spec you in wants the part number. Give them the part number. That same organization is going to have a different person come to your website, which might be procurement. Two different needs, two different functions. You got to you have to build experiences for both, different functionality. But what you keyed in on for the Bolt example, attributes, attributes, attributes. That's what engineers need. And if you don't have good product content and attributes for your products, good luck. Let's just let's just hold that thought for a second because that is that is where I think all right. It's like people are living in the stone ages sometimes when they think you're going to be able to sell things e-commerce and you don't have your product attributes sound really good. Because otherwise, how the heck are you going to tell your systems how to show the right things when you need it? How are you going to let people search? I mean, there's so many things that you can't do if you don't have your product attributes sound. That's right. And what you mentioned before is the, the generational differences of today's B2B buyers. Going back to my uh, monster days is... I got a lot of good foundational training in the differences of generations. And what I thought was interesting is um, uh, a sequence of, of generations going from small to large, right? The greatest generation uh, went away to fight the war, right? And when they came back, what'd they do? They made a bunch of babies. Boomers, right? Greatest generation, boomers. Xers, me. Yeah. Smaller. It raises again with the millennials, right? Mm -hmm. And those millennials and what's happening over the course of time, those generations, they're phasing out of the workforce. Well, as we yeah. all know, the boomers are the ones that are currently phasing out, right? So what's really important to think about is that the majority of your buyers today are the ones that have really high expectations digitally that you're probably not hitting their mark because the buyers coming in in an industrial shopping experience today their expectations are defined when they have their consumer hat on. Mm -hmm. Your website has to provide the same sort of uh, reduced friction that they've come to expect. Because if yes. you put friction in front of them, they'll go someplace else. Yes. Yes, 100%. So do you see many companies getting it? You know what the one... Great question, by the way, because in certain industries, there's a lot of um, 
older mentalities, if you will, mm -hmm. right? But regardless of the current state of any organization in any industry, the ones that get it right have good leaders. Leaders of the organizations, they're the ones that drive strategy and execution priorities within the organization to manage it to become most profitable. The organizations that are doing it right are have executive leaders that get it and know that they have to fix it. That's the one commonality. Yep, get it and know they have to fix it. That's right. Yeah, because that... I feel like there's a lot of companies that are, are dying a slow death and they don't realize it. And it, it just, it, and it happens in an almost crazy manner sometimes because you'll see a company and they're doing great and, and they might just, you know, take a little bit of the shine off. They're not quite doing as great as they were one day. And then the next thing you know, there's somebody that's got 25% of the market share that they once owned. And they came out of nowhere because they were, you know, they did it differently or they did, you know, whatever. Yep. Uh, and that's that's what I think is happening to a lot of these, especially larger, more successful companies, because they, you know, you can defend it. I mean, you can defend it just like, hey, this is this, this is that sure. uh, uh, for quite a while sure. until until it's just, well, I guess we're wrong. And the tsunami really is here and the water's waist deep. That's right. Well, and, and you're you're putting a big spotlight on something that's really important here, because why don't organizations change? Why is it so hard to do that? Yeah. I'll tell you why. And it goes back to some of that philosophy background I have, because psychology is a major portion of this conversation. Change is hard. The human brain is hardwired to protect the body, right? And think about what happens if you're going into an organization and you have to change everything. What do you think happens to the people of that organization? You get that not so good feeling in your belly, right? Yeah. yeah. It's that anxiety. It's that anxiety that your body ramps up on because I don't know what this guy's talking about. I don't know what that even means, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, so to pivot an organization and to transform, this is the hard part, but it's a reality. You have to change from the inside out to mirror the buying processes and experiences of people on the outside in. So when I talk about those humans of business, employees, customers, and candidates, at the end of the day, when you have happy people of your business, the profitability and the financial outcomes you seek are a natural byproduct. But the employees of, it, of your organization, they're your most valuable asset. And if you have bad experiences for candidates and customers, who's the one holding the bag? The employees. Yeah. And it just sucks out engagement and productivity from the workforce. You got to fix the experiences of the people on the outside, but you have to change, most importantly, your internal processes and philosophies inside. And that's hard. Yeah, it is because you have to be open enough to ask the hard questions and go, is the way we're doing it really effective anymore? That's right. That's right. That's right. And who wants... To answer that question, if you if you're afraid the answer is bad, no one even wants to ask the question for the same reason. Yeah, it does go back to psychology, and it and it certainly applies to executives. I mean, I just saw an interesting stat too, Damon, that this whole great resignation or whatever you want to call it. By the way, we got to stop calling it quitting. By the way, 
we today on your show, Damon, let's start a movement to stop calling it quitting. Quitting is a negative, dirty word. Mm -hmm. Knock it off. Four and a half million people in November, Damon, prioritize their life happiness. Here's the interesting stat. C-suite executives are affected by it too for the exact same reason. And it goes back to the psychology of the person, right? And since, I believe it was since May of 2021, the number of quits or C-suite executives that have prioritized their life happiness has more than doubled since yeah. it affects them too. Yeah. Wow. I did not realize that, but it, it affects everyone. Sure it, does. It, does. it does. This is, and it's not. Yeah. I got to think about that a little bit because it, that's just, it's staggering really when you think about what's happening now and on the other side of it, what we can do to prevent a lot of the people re adjust or adjusting their, their lifestyle differently. That's right. As leaders. That's right. And I'm going to be uh, doing a, a webinar with ERE tomorrow, actually. And yeah. part of it is going to be talking to organizations about how to win in this current labor market, because this is crazy. I mean, this yeah. is nuts. Two thirds of all employees are looking for a new job. Yeah. Two thirds. Wow. Two thirds. Oh my goodness. Well, and it's, it, you know, if you're an employee and you're not happy where you're at, this is the best time you've ever had to, you know, in the, for, in the, I can't remember a time when you, you were able to actually switch and move to a different job, a it's different not, job that might be where you had to go to an office that might've been a horrible commute that now I could get a remote job. That's right. That's right. And that within itself, Damon, is the biggest shift in all of this is that the power that used to be with the employers, most importantly, the employers that were in a half hour drive of people that lived in that locale, mm -hmm. it's off the table, right? There is nothing, you're in you're in Seattle, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. here I am and sitting in Cleveland. There yeah. is no shortage of opportunities for digital people in the Seattle market. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason why that a lot of these forward-leaning organizations that have put in place employee programs that are important to them to give them that flexibility between work and life and 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 working digitally remote elsewhere mm -hmm. they're recruiting people across the country so a lot of these people that are leaving organizations the biggest change here is that the power sits with talent for the first time in history mm -hmm. talent has the power and it's largely because i'm not relegated to the employers that are within a half hour drive. I can go work anywhere. Now, I think th this, you are hundred percent right. And I get excited about this because in the areas where the talent pool of people that can work digitally is limited, this has opened the world and yeah. it really has changed the game for people like this. And it, it, it gets me excited because if I was, if I was in the middle of Montana with a big company and I had struggled with, you know, sub 1% employment, I would be figuring out how to remote every single person I could and figure out how I could get the best people from across North America, United States, wherever the heck I wanted to hire them and figure out how to do that. Because 
you have given these people that are forward thinkers, these leaders, uh, an unprecedented labor or talent pool that's right. that they can tap into. And I, I just think that's super exciting. I, I couldn't agree more. There's so many good benefits that are coming out of this. In fact, the state of New York um, just passed a new law that job postings have to state the salary. Okay. That level of transparency is only because of this shift in the power that is now happening with employees and talent. Mm -hmm. Great. Now we're going to get some, some of the more perplexing challenges in the employment space, like salary equity, yeah. D&I, right? These are all things that are incredibly important to culture and employees. And yeah. it's really put a lot of downward pressure on organizations to change how they operate, change yeah. how they, how, what is the, the culture of the organization, along with all of those longstanding processes that are inefficient and are making a lot of people unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. That's something. That's something. Well, you know, we, we were going to talk about, and we are, we're still going to talk about, we're going to about, about digital strategies and connect them to financial KPIs. But I, yeah. I really enjoy the fact that we're talking about people because at the end of the day, you know, these digital strategies aren't going to do you any good without having the right people to execute them. That's and, right. um, the, the people leaving, two-thirds of the people looking for jobs. And then, as I said, too, the talent pool opening up you know, globally for, for businesses. I think you really have to look at that because as you move into these, these different strategies and you do uh, decide that you're going to change and you're going to do the things that you need to do, you've committed to doing that, um, it does take the right people. Mm -hmm. and, and that's going to be one of your first challenges if, if you're in a in a turnover situation where you don't have the people to do it. We've seen a lot of that in, in some of these and manufacturers and which frankly, most companies yep. that, that really weren't adopting good leadership. I've had some that zero turnover, almost, yep. you know, good companies that you know, embraced whatever they've always been treating their people. Well, and then on the other hand, we've had some with quite a bit of turnover, but um, this, you got to start there. Otherwise you can't execute any of your strategies. That's right. That's right. It all comes down to execution. And that's yeah. all we should really be caring about. Because going back to those consulting days, everybody pitches strategy. Every agency has the the their version of a concentric circle, right? Or, or a fishbone chart, right? Yeah. It's all the same stuff. All it is is a sequence of events of how we're going to work together. Yes. There is no difference between them. But at the yes. end of the day, clients should really just care about the results. Mm hmm. So how have you kind of turned this on its on its side here a little bit or on its face or on its behind yep. with Hatch? You've you've changed the way that you do this with clients a little bit. And it and it really does focus in on the the execution and the results. Yeah. Um, so I lead with execution. And the way that I, that I talk to clients about it is uh, paying for the ops. You get the strategy for free. And yeah. this is a big difference because because. Again, the strategy isn't terribly valuable, not without execution, certainly yeah. not to a business owner. So if you think about the, the agency concentric circles or the fishbone charts that they have, right? Um, I use that chronology of, of events between uh, consulting agency and client, uh, 4Ds, and there's a lot of different versions out there. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm going to talk generically. Discovery, design, develop, deploy, right? 
sequence of events. Here's what unites the challenge of the consulting world. Discovery gets shortchanged. Discovery gets shortchanged because clients, I'm not going to pay you to learn my business. You yeah. have to earn my business. And agencies on the other side are saying, I'm not going to go sit Ken and three other, the brand strategist and the creative director inside of a client for three months. Go learn their business. Fingers crossed we're going to win some business on the way out. That ain't happening either, right? Yeah. So I was on the front lines of this friction, natural born friction in the consulting agency with the client. And what happens is discovery gets shortchanged for those reasons. So what I did with Hatch is something different because discovery is critical. It's critical because if you don't have good discovery, guess what happens? In that design portion of any program or initiative, it's iteration after iteration after iteration after iteration. Why? Because you're just learning stuff out you should have known before you started. Mm. So what I do, what I've tried to do with Hatch is simply pull the plug on that friction, right? Give away the strategy, but most importantly, have a model that is cost averse because every business owner doesn't want to spend money anyways. Mm -hmm. Lean into that. Put together ways that you can help them start to turn the battleship. And then if they want to execute it internally, great. If you need help, let me know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's good because I think that you're, you're right in the strategy is important. There's no doubt about it. But if you don't, if it's not deployed or executed in the right fashion, you do just end up redoing, redoing, redoing. That's right. And nobody wants that. And yeah. it, 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 executives get tired of it. We've been working on this for how many years? Employees are burned out because they're all frustrated. And oh, by the way, who suffers the most? Customers and candidates. Yeah. You can't get out of your own way. Mm-hmm. So part of the ways that we have to start thinking about this differently is everything has to be measured. Executives love numbers and KPIs. Yeah. Yep. Came up with a methodology and a process that looks at digital KPIs, operational KPIs, but most importantly, how they tie together to equal financial KPIs. Because mm-hmm. EBITDA and margin and revenue, these are all things that executives follow every day. And let's use, a, in fact, let, let's. this is a great example. Let's talk about an industrial B2B manufacturer, right? The executive team's look at those financial metrics to determine the financial health of the organization. But guess what else they follow? They follow things like inventory turn and scrap rate. Why? Because those are guideposts for the quarter end numbers and how they're going to look. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I do with Hatch is we have operational and digital KPIs that executives need to be monitoring with just as much attention because there's just as much correlation to the profitability and the financial health of the organization, but they aren't looking in the right places. Yeah. So you, your digital uh, KPIs you're talking about are just as important as scrap and downtime and other things like that, that they're looking at. Yeah. And this is, this is something that, that's, that's really at the core of, of work we do with financial too, because I think a lot of companies look at their, well, I not think I know, a lot of the companies, as you said, they'll look at these these guideposts 
but they really don't have to just look at guideposts too. They can look at, like you're saying, the digital KPIs. These are all important guideposts. Yep. And a lot of times what we help companies do is then take that, uh, take those guideposts and go, well, what was our gross profit? What was our gross margin? Not on a monthly basis. And this yep. makes this makes financial people throw up when I say this. <laughs> but let's do it on a weekly basis. Let's yeah. do it on a daily basis if we That's really right. need to. Let's That's right. I mean, we have all these wonderful systems and and we only broke the year up into 12 months because somebody decided it was, you know, that's the way to do it a gazillion right. years ago. But I know that if I have, just like with, with digital, I mean, with digital, if somebody is managing a, a massive pay-per-click campaign or something where you're spending money, it can go like this, like this. Or if I'm making something like I'm champion and I'm making spark plugs or something like that, I'm going to make 5 million spark plugs today. You know, each one of those spark plugs is good by golly. You don't make a million of them and then go, oh, I guess we didn't, you know, right. didn't turn out so well on that. They're all bad yeah. or something. Uh, that's why vision system, all this other junk came around. So when we when we were working with clients, we're like, why why do you wait till the end of the month? And then, oh, it's not the end of the month because it takes our financial people another two weeks to get our financials done. So, so you could be going for six weeks and not really knowing, other than maybe looking at a checkbook, which is the god awfulest way to do it. Yeah. Um, what you're doing. And I think that the guideposts that you're putting together and some of the other financial metrics, th these are things that business leaders that really want to know before they get surprised by a financial statement, good That's or bad. Right. That's right. How they're doing. And you want to sleep well at night? Go home knowing how you did rather than okay. guessing. And this, this is awesome. I did because the way you're talking about this and the things that you do is, is so key because this is not little money. When you're sure. talking, you're talking hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in in digital efforts. When you look at some some mid to larger size companies, easily. And if you can't tie these into actual results, you can have somebody that's helping you build a strategy that you're executing poorly, and it's just money going down the drain. That's right. That's right. Ultimately, the, the way that I talk about it, Damon, is every digital investment you make in your organization needs to track to one of two things, if not both. Top line revenue growth or the avoidance of cost, mm -hmm. both of which lead to a healthier bottom line. That's all this is. And we have to think about these programs and initiatives and upgrades and whatever else we think of. All the changes that have to be made ultimately have to be thought of as investments. And you've got to answer three questions. How much is it? How much am I going to get back? And over what time frame? Yep. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Man, it's I when okay. So awesome talking about the the you know the digital strategies and financial KPIs and incredible. If people want to talk to you, Ken, they'd reach out to you on LinkedIn. You're in the comments and you'll be on that, you'll be in the in the blog posts and stuff. Um, we're we're getting near time. But I got to talk about stoicism with you just for a second. Love it. So, Love it. so a post that I put up, I didn't even think about it the other day, and you you commented on it. But let's let's just start in on that about what you you know because you're a rhetoric and philosophy guy. I just want to hear yeah. your thoughts around it because you, you when before we got on, you talked about embrace the suck, yep. and I really think that this is something that our leaders of today and and people in general can really. Um, 
really get get benefit from. There we go. So, so. yeah, you just made this post recently, and, and it was from a, a Navy. And I haven't read the book, by the way, yet. I yeah. I, I, I looked at the uh, at the summary, if you will. I, I did a little light reading coming yeah. in today. Um, but what was interesting is that even the the uh, forward and, and, and the summary of what the book is really ties back to a core tenet of Stoicism, um, which ultimately comes down to um, acknowledging the things you can and can't control. Yeah. And any time you spend on those things is time wasted. But most importantly, those obstacles that you're faced with in business and in life, they're opportunities. And you need to choose to view them as opportunities because there's ways that you can grow. Yeah, They're growth opportunities. There's a great book for you, by the way, um, Ryan Holiday, who's a stoic buff, if you will. Um, and the book is called The Obstacle is the Way. Oh, yes. I read it. Yeah. Great. Yep. Yeah. Uh, awesome book. Awesome book. It, because you're right. I mean, we we can sit here in these these kind of challenges because we're all going to have them. I don't care. And this is this is a thing that a lot of people they'll look at successful people. They'll look at oh, uh, whoever they could look at Tom Brady. They could look at look at yesterday Patrick Mahomes. They could talk yep. about any people that are sports fame anywhere you want. And you go, oh man, it's so great. It goes so great to them, but they don't see all the challenges that they overcame That's to right. get there. The That's just right. the the sheer tenacity, you know, crying in your losses, thinking you're not going to get there anymore. The tenacity yep. it takes and the effort to get that good at something. So a lot. And again, this goes back to so much in psychology, right? Is that the human brain as it's hardwired to protect the body has a natural resistance to anything unpleasant. That's the brain's job, yeah. right? Yeah. But what separates a lot of the, uh, Tom Brady being a great example, the amount of hours in the, to your point, the successes and failures behind the scenes that nobody sees. So many people in life see someone like Tom Brady and want the results, but aren't willing to put in the time and effort to get there. Yeah. Right. And that's where a lot of that, you've got to have a, a, a you got to have a strong stomach uh, to get through adversity right? Mm -hmm. You have to, but it starts with your mindset and it's not the event that happened. It's what happened, how you choose to live after that event because it's history. Yeah. Right. And, and that's a lot of the ways that, that the stoic philosophers viewed things is they didn't determine success, um, based on whether or not they won a, uh, an, audience or an argument over the way that Stoics view success is whether or not they made best use of what they had at that time where they were. And it's a constant reminder to focus on those things. Cause if you're looking at things that are outside your control, you're wasting your time. Yes. Apply that in business too. Yes. Awesome. That's incredible, dude. I, <laughs> And what a way to finish it up. It's it's so good to talk about this because I think that's one thing we can all look at is choose. We're all going to get dealt a, a poop sandwich once in a while. It's how we choose to deal with it. You know, it's just the way it is. That's right. Everybody's going to have challenges. And, and when you look at it and, you know, are you going to get up? Are you going to keep moving? Are you going to do what you think is right? Or are you just going to sit there and, and 
say I'm done. And it's a choice. I got to thank you, Damon, because uh, this is the first webinar where I got to repeat the phrase poop sandwich. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I've been known. It's off the bucket list for me. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm cleaning up my language, so I didn't go, go with my alternatives and, uh, and I'm doing it. But uh, you know what, Ken? Thanks so much for being here today. You know, we were talking about digital strategies and how you're connecting them to financial KPIs. Covered a wide range of topics. I just want to say thanks so much for being here, man, because you are a, a real gem and knowledge knowledge in the e-commerce industry and, and stoicism, which is just an added bonus at the end. Thanks so much for being here today, man. David, I can't thank you enough for, for playing host. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. All right. Well, if anyone wants to reach out to Ken, go ahead and look him up. Ken Novak on LinkedIn. You can look at hatchquantified.com as well and find him there. Uh, and you can also look in the show notes. He's in there. You can connect with him there. So thanks, everyone, for being here today on the basis of business. We'll be back again 